It is a great privilege of mine to introduce our speaker this morning. He hardly needs an introduction. He's been a pastor in our city for several years now, Ronnie Stevens, pastor of the First Evangelical Church here in Memphis, a friend of Gracie Vans. It goes back a long way. I remember when we had the tornado that came through here in the early 90s. Uh, this was the pastor that opened his church doors to us, and we worshiped at First Evangelical Church on Saturday nights for many weeks while we were rebuilding our church here, and we got to know Ronnie Stevens that way. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the deal was if Jimmy would go and pastor this church for three months, Ronnie would come and speak for us for one Sunday. Now, I don't think that's a fair deal, but uh, I think Jimmy got the bad end of the deal there. But that was the deal. If if Jimmy would go do this for Ronnie, then uh, Ronnie would agree to come and preach for us. And we're glad to have him today. I do want to say one thing, brother. And I was thinking about this. I told you I was awake early this morning, and one of the thoughts I was thinking about was this was probably my only and last opportunity to say this about you publicly. So, Ronnie, by the way, will be leaving uh, this year to go to Hungary and and to serve in Eastern Europe to teach uh, young pastors as they're preparing for the ministry there. So he'll be leaving the city of Memphis and moving over there where Jimmy is uh, staying right now. But uh, one of the thoughts I had during the night was... Here's a brother that has personally impacted me in the last few years. I've watched this man and his love for fellow pastors. Uh, This is a man who has even crossed denominational lines and had fellowship with other pastors in our city. And I've had the opportunity to be around some of those men as we've shared fellowship together. And it's encouraged me as as a young pastor to see the love he has for other men in the ministry. And that's a significant thing. Uh, for the church. I, I appreciate his commitment to the unity of the body of Christ. Brother, it's, it's a privilege to have you here. Welcome to Grace Event. I had my word of greeting to those you've already heard in Jesus' beautiful name. Three months of Jimmy, one Sunday of me. Sounds about right. Just kidding. I uh, know that your whole church thinks that I talked him into it. I promise you, I did not. I only registered the uh, the opportunity, that's all. Now, the funny thing is he thought he wanted a sabbatical. I mean, he's, he's constitutionally and congenitally incapable of taking a sabbatical. And uh, he's been chafing and jumping around and frustrated ever since he's been there because he wants more work to do. And um, he's, he's really an amazingly hyperactive person. I, I go... Th- <laughs> I go through the world just looking for a place to lie down, and uh, he's kind of the polar opposite of me, really. Um, tomorrow, he'll be going to the Czech Republic to meet with a group of Moravian Christians who are really the spiritual heirs of the great Moravians who sparked a great 18th century mission movement, which... I mentioned, I think, the last time I was with you, the great quote of the young Moravian boy who was among the company who sold themselves into slavery in the West Indies so that they could reach the slaves. And he shouted as the ship moved away from the dock, May the Lord Christ have recompense for his wounds. Your pastor will be ministering among Christians who are the spiritual heirs and the lineal physical descendants of those Christians Czechoslovakia had three provinces, Bohemia, where Prague is, Slovakia, 
where Bratislava is, which is, of course, seceded from Czechoslovakia, leaving the Czech Republic. And in, in the middle, Romania, whose capital is Brno. And uh, Jimmy will be ministering there this week. So don't forget to pray for him. His ministry is not merely on Sunday, and it's not merely in Hungary, but it's in other places and other times as well. Please turn to Acts 13. And when I was with you the last time, I didn't know I'd be coming back. And if I'd known I'd been coming back, we would have done this chronologically. Because last time, we talked about the second missionary journey. And now I want to talk about the launch of the first missionary journey. And I thought it might be appropriate, because you sent your pastor out, to preach to you from this great text on the church at Antioch, the sending church. There are two kinds of people, those who divide people up into two groups and those who don't. I'm in the first group. And we may make all kinds of divisions. There are obvious divisions which are perceptible to the eye. There's male and female. There's black and white. There's rich and poor. In the ancient world, there were slave and free. There's Jew and Gentile. There are divisions which only God can see. There's a little Greek phrase in the New Testament. It's totally transparent to those of us who only know English. The preposition in plus the dative. In Christo. In Christ. This is God's final and ultimate and eternal division. Either a soul is in Christo, in Christ, or not in Christ. And God doesn't treat us according to denominations. God only sees whether we are in Christ. If we are in Christ, he has a certain disposition toward us. If we are not in Christ, he has another disposition toward us. And this is the final and ultimate division of all children of Adam. Among those who are, who are in Christ, among believers, there is another division. And when we understand the Great Commission, and when we understand what the New Testament church is to be about in the inter-Advent age, we will understand that we can only take our place consciously and deliberately in one of those two divisions. We are either goers or we are senders. There's no middle ground. We can either go ourselves or we can send. This is the assignment that the Lord has left us with. We may look at the Jerusalem church, and it was a great church. There were things in the Jerusalem church which are not practical models to us. The great church practice, uh, excuse me, the, the Jerusalem church practiced communism. It was voluntary. Communism is a wonderful thing as long as it's voluntarily, if, as long as it's rendered voluntarily, as long as it's because of love. A family is a communist unit. That name has become so dirty because of the Soviet Union and because of the experience of the 20th century. But it's okay as long as it's voluntary. When the government forces it, that's when it becomes a terrible thing. But the Jerusalem church, which had their possessions in common, is, is not a, the, 
perhaps the greatest model of New Testament churches for us today. Certainly not the Corinthian church. So full of strife and personality cults and the abuses of the sign gifts. I would nominate the Antioch church as a model church for the 21st century West. And the Antioch church was a sending church. And that's the church we want to study this morning as the first missionary journey was launched from that church in the first century. We'll read verses 1 through 4 of Acts 13. We'll spend a long time setting the historic context from Acts 12 in honor of God and His Word. May we just stand a moment just to read these four verses. May we stand in honor of God and His Word. Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were there ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Father, what um, a pedestrian and uh, undramatic beginning for something so auspicious, something which made such a difference as the first missionary journey. Help us to understand this passage. Why the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record it. Why, through a miracle of providence and preservation, we have it inscripturated in the canon of the Holy Bible to nurture the church permanently until the Lord of the church returns. May we gain all we need to gain from this passage of Scripture this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' beautiful and wonderful name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. The first thing I want to say is that the sending church um, prosecutes its task amidst a historical scaffolding. Every generation and every different place in every generation moves amidst the scaffolding of history. Now, I call history scaffolding for a reason. History is temporary. Eternity is permanent. History changes. Eternity is fixed. And one day the Lord will return and he will take down the scaffolding of history. And what will remain will be his true work. Because you are 21st century Westerners, it will be important to most of you that you get a Sunday paper. Some of you may have already seen it. Some of you may have seen the sleeping rhino lying on that canvas on the front page of the paper. Some of you may have already checked the basketball scores and other features of the paper. How Mike Miller is doing is a grizzly. It's very important for most of us sometime today to see that Sunday paper. How important is it to see last Sunday's paper? 
How important is it to see last month's paper? How important is it to see last year's paper? It's not important at all. It's worthless. We throw it away. How important is it to have this, this Sunday and next Sunday and every day of our lives? History is a kind of scaffolding. Now, in chapter 12, something momentous took place. At the beginning of chapter 12, James, one of the inner three apostles, you remember only Peter, James, and John went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember only Peter, James, and John went further into the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember only Peter, James, and John saw the raising of Jairus' daughter. They were the inner three. And James was very special. James had, I believe, the most successful mother in the world. We often criticize her because she had a little bit of the Jewish stage mother in her. Uh, She was just a little bit pushy. She wanted her boys to sit next to Jesus in his kingdom. But what great faith that she was expecting that. And what great success that two of the children that she reared were in the inner three. One of the children she reared, John, was the one of the inner one. What a successful mother. And one thing that she was really praying was that her boys could be with Jesus and that her boys could be together on either side of Jesus. You know, the Lord didn't answer that prayer immediately. Her boys weren't together. As a matter of fact, her boys were apart longer than any of the apostles were apart. Because one of her boys was the first apostle to die. And the other of her boys was the last apostle to die, James and John. And in the beginning of Acts 12, horror of horrors, James dies under the sword of Herod. Now, I think the first century church had to make up their mind, didn't they? You know, it's dangerous out there. They're going to kill us if we keep this up. Rome is aroused. Rome is angry at us for telling the world that there's another king. As a matter of fact, there's a greater king than Caesar. And his name is King Jesus. And we look at our generation and we say, well, what about Al-Qaeda? And and what about Hezbollah? And and what about Hamas? And, and, And what if we actually go into... Iraq, can we continue to travel as believers? Can we send missionaries out? They may kill us. We may die. You know what? We're all going to die anyway. 100% of us are going to die. The death rate in every generation is 100%. Unless we're alive when Jesus comes... The question is not whether you're going to die or or whether you're going to live. The question is whether you're going to die in God's will, whether you're going to die out of the Lord's will. Whether you're going to die trying to rescue others or whether you're going to die trying to protect yourself. I hope we don't crash. But if we do crash, let's, let's crash trying to take off, not trying to land. Trying to be obedient. Trying to lay down our lives 
as a ransom, as our Savior did, not trying to protect our lives. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake shall gain it. You see, Acts 12 doesn't just talk about the death of James. In the beginning of Acts 12, James dies under the sword of Herod. But at the end of Acts 12, Herod dies under the sword of the Lord. Have you ever noticed that? Luke describes the passage in verses 19 to verse 23 of Acts 12. It says in verse 22 that the people kept crying out about Herod, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. and He was eaten by worms and died. Do you realize that Josephus, the Jewish historian, describes this event in great detail in his antiquities? Book 19, chapter 8. Section 2. What happened, there was a delegation there which had come to seek uh, economic favors from Herod. And so they were bent on flattering him. And the meeting was held by the sea at Caesarea in an amphitheater. And Herod stepped up to the dais at the exact moment that the sun began, began to peak over the rim of the stadium. And he was wearing a, a shiny, satin-like garment which shivered, which, excuse me, which shimmered. And so when he comes up on the dais, this shimmering garment catches the sun's rays. And it was like it was ignited, and it made a very dramatic impression. And Josephus said that when Herod began to speak, the, vo- the crowd began to chant, It's a God, not a man. It's a God, not a man. And Josephus calls it impious flattery. And he says, so the Lord struck him. And five days later he died. In the 54th year of his life. And in the seventh year of his reign. James dies, yes, but Herod dies too. And so will we all die either attempting to do the Lord's work or shirking from the Lord's work. I'm sure the first century church realized, hey, if James can get killed, any of us can get killed. If James is not indispensable to the work of the gospel and obedience to the Great Commission, if the Lord would allow James to die, one of the Lord's darlings, one of his favorites, John's brother, one of the inner three, then any of us could die in the Lord's service at any time. There are no guarantees. He doesn't say you'll never die. He says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you in the moment of death. I'll be with you to the end of the age. And so the church at Antioch, beholding the spectacle of James' execution, swallows hard, fixes the bayonet, and marches, and sends out 
the apostolic team on the first missionary journey. The second thing we notice in this passage is that the sending church is a well-supplied church. There was a sufficiency there. It says in verse 1 that there were prophets and there were teachers there, a plenty, like this church. A church where there's more than one teacher. A church where more than one person can get up and speak. A, a church where more than one person can disciple men and women and build them up in the most holy faith and lead them as worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a sufficiency there. And of their sufficiency, they gave. There was a sufficiency there. There was a, I can hardly use this word today. It's been appropriated and perverted. It means something political. It means something which suggests certain lifestyles. But we must not surrender it. We've surrendered other words that we can't use anymore, including the one-syllable word which used to mean happy-go-lucky and doesn't mean that anymore. There was a diversity in the first century church. There was a, a, a diversity in the sending church, in the church at Antioch. You know, one of the great missions emphases of the 20th century spawned by a great missionary, a missionary to India, who was a great missionary, who, who became a great missionary teacher. It's called the homogeneous cell principle. And what it means is that like begets like. And if you want to inspire church growth, you've got to find people like yourselves. Because you can't build a church with people who are not like yourselves. That's true. You can't build a church with people not like yourselves. But the Holy Spirit can. And when the Holy Spirit does build the church, there are people who are not like us. There are people who are very different from us. This person in this church called Simeon was likely black. There were people who were different politically. Most of us are conservatives. But in a group this large, there's going to be someone a little bit liberal, probably a little bit younger. When dark-skinned people come and worship with us, they're probably going to be more liberal in their political perspective than we are. And there's a man here who actually grew up in the household of Herod. He was raised by Herod in Herod's family. Isn't that amazing how different he must have been? So there's not only sufficiency and there's not only diversity, but there's sovereignty. God sovereignly chooses who will be the members of the church. God will sovereignly save even those who are members of the household who slaughtered James. And that's what he done to build the church at Antioch. And from their great sufficiency and from their great blessing, they gave. They sent away. And they sent out. We can't outgive the Lord. That not only that not only applies to money and material things, it applies to personnel. When we give away people who are much harder to give away than money, the Lord will compensate even our children. When we send them out, there's no more Christmas with them. There's no more Thanksgiving with them. They may not even make it back in time for the funeral. 
because we've sent them out. The Lord will compensate us for that. And so in their great sufficiency and blessing, as a well-supplied church, they sent out these first apostles. The sending church is a theocentric church. God was in the center. It says in verse 2 that while they were ministering to the Lord, they heard the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you ever noticed it or not. It's a very profane example. But, and, of course, one of, the great, one of the few disadvantages of living where we live is that we live near a great gambling center. And so much of the media is dominated by attention to that theme because there's so much money. There's so many foolish people who throw their money away in that direction. And so they have so much money that they can dominate the, the media and the advertising. And they can sell food at a very low price in their restaurants. Because so many people will come down there and pay them back. And once out on, um, once out on the Germantown Parkway, I noticed a billboard. And it said, all casinos have themes. Ours is gambling. I thought that was very clever. Very succinct and to the point. I realized when I lived in, in um, Dallas in the early 70s, I was just, my breath was taken away at the great variety of churches. There were mall-like churches. There were boutique-like churches. And there were churches which uh, emphasized great oratory from the pulpit, and there were churches which were very quiet, and it was almost like a dialogue. One of the great churches there, which was the flagship for many other churches, the pastor would come out in a turtleneck and hold the microphone and would sit down and just kind of talk to the people. There were churches which emphasized the family, and there were churches that emphasized singles, and there were churches which emphasized students, and there were churches which emphasized music and worship, and there were churches which emphasized the spiritual gifts, and there were churches which uh, emphasize scholarship and an academic approach to the Scripture and very, very sober seminary-like teaching. And there were churches which emphasized liturgy, and there were all kinds of different churches. And I, as I looked at that billboard, realizing that, first of all, I didn't have enough money to put up billboards, but if we did, I, w- I would want to say, all churches have themes. Ours is God. Ours is God. And this church had a great burden and and had a great emphasis. And it wasn't necessarily missions. It was God. The horizontal emphasis flowed out of the vertical preoccupation. The ministry which moved in the horizontal direction moved from the prior and superior ministry which flowed in the vertical direction, as they were worshiping the Lord, the Lord said, I want you to send this one out, and I want you to send that one out. I asked myself the question, why some churches never send anybody out? The church I grew up in sent out one person in a hundred years. He wasn't that impressive. And I think maybe if we would draw apart 
to the Lord, just to minister to Him more. Maybe He would set apart more among us to minister to others. That's what happened in the church at Antioch, the sending church, according to verse 2. The fourth thing I see is that because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the sending church determined to send out their best. You say, how do, how do I know it was their best? Do you think they had anybody better than Paul and Barnabas? And I'm sure some of you, and I don't mean to scold you if this actually came out of your mouth, whether it came out of your mouth or not, I'm sure it entered your head, at least some of you. I'm sure some of you thought, well, yeah, good grief, we'll send somebody, but we have to send the pastor? Yeah, you do. When I lived overseas before as a missionary, I would make it very clear with church leaders, you know, who would have a tendency to adopt a posture of, well, you know, maybe we could spare this person or maybe we could spare that person. And my response to that was, I don't want anybody you can spare. If you can spare them, we can spare them. I only want the ones you can't spare. It's harder to do ministry there. Do you think if someone struggles here, they're going to do great there? It doesn't work that way. I only want your best. I want the people that you can't do without in your ministry here. That's who we want for ministry on the mission field. Only those you absolutely cannot do without. And they sent out their best. You know, certain professional teams designate a franchise player. That means when there's an expansion, that person is protected. You can't have him because he's the hub of the franchise. Those are the ones you should send as missionaries. That's who the church at Antioch sent, the franchise players. Paul and Barnabas. I notice in this passage that the sending church actually actually sent. Verse 3 says, they told them goodbye and they sent them away. And I want to just look, as, as we believe in the plenary inspiration of the Scripture, maybe I'm making something out of this which isn't really here, but I want to call your attention to the different verbs which the Holy Spirit invites, or um, actually it's not a verb, it's an adverb, um, which the Holy Spirit caused Luke to differentiate. In verse, I don't even know if it's an adverb, it's been so long since I studied English, but in verse 3... The scripture says that the church at Antioch sent them away. In verse 4, 
the scripture says that the Holy Spirit sent them out. I think that summer, some, uh, sums it up rather nicely. I'm, I'm perfectly capable of sending people away. I mean, people are exposed to my ministry and go away all the time. Only the Holy Spirit can send, can send us out. And, and by the way, once we understand what Jesus is saying, we only have two choices. You remember that poignant, poignant, moving passage in John 6 where they keep what Jesus says is mysterious. He actually acts, acts like he's telling them that they must eat his flesh and, and drink his blood. And every time they ask for a clarification, he makes it even more mysterious. Have you ever noticed that? Go back and track it. John chapter 6. Until finally, so many of them, of them were exasperated. So exasperated, it says, that, that they went away. And they were no longer following him. And he says, with great pathos, you don't want to leave me too, do you? That may be the most vulnerable picture of Jesus in the Gospels. You don't want to desert me too, do you? To his disciples. And yet, when we understand the message, we can do one of two things. We can go away from him. Like the rich young ruler who went away sorrowing because he had too much to lose. And he wasn't about to lose it only for Jesus. We can go away from him. Or we can go out for him. Those are only two choices. Once we hear the message, once we understand what he's saying to us, we can only go away from him or we can go out for him. Those are the only choices. There's no middle ground. You say, well, where do you want me to go? I've got a job and I've got... Well, you know where Barnabas went? You know where Barnabas was from? Anybody know where Barnabas was from? Raise your hand. Next Sunday, you'll be able to raise your hand. Barnabas was from Cyprus. You know where the first place they went was? Cyprus. Sometimes that's a great place to start when we go out for the Lord. You can stay at home. That's fine. Chesterton said there are two ways to get home, and one is to stay there. It's okay if you stay at home as long as you're a sender. That's one of the categories. I think the last time I was with you, I shared Carrie's great challenge to the Baptist ministers, the particular Baptist ministers of England. If you will hold the rope, I'll go down into the pit. You can go home as long as you're a sender. As long as you do the Lord's work at home while others are doing the Lord's work someplace else. I chose this passage because you've proven that you are a sending church. You sent your pastor and his wife. God bless you for it. Don't ever say, boy, I hope we never do that again. 
look for opportunities to do it more often. I got a deacon, great friend, tough businessman, no-nonsense guy. You would recognize, most of you, the name of the company that he, he owns. And I, I promised a pal of mine that I would do his wedding when he got married. He got married until he was 47 years old. And he's a missionary, and he, and he married a Romanian. I never travel in the fall because pastors can't be away in the fall. And I'd already used all my off days, and our church year ends on September 30th. And so he calls me. He's going to marry this beautiful young Romanian girl in September in Romania. So I'm screwing up my courage trying to break the news to the chairman of my elders and the chairman of my deacons, who was this guy. And, and I said, you know, I hate to do this. I really don't have any more time off, but I've known this guy for 25 years, and I've always said that I would do his wedding. And he's, he's getting married, and, and I've got to be away this weekend to do this wedding in Cluj, Romania. And he said, you're going all the way to Romania for a wedding? That's a long way to go for a wedding, isn't it? It's the only time he's ever spoken like that to me in his life. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, Lord, this just didn't turn out like I hoped it would turn out. So I called him on the phone the next day and I said, I want to answer the question you asked me yesterday. He said, what question was that? I said, the question of am I going to Romania for a wedding? I said, yeah, I'm going to Romania for a wedding. And you're going with me. And I've got you a free ticket. So you can't say no. You know, he went with me. And he was set on fire. He's been back to Romania twice since then. Without me. And on the way home, and I never dreamed it would work this well. On the way home, he looked at me and he said, you know, what you do over here is really important. I mean, it's really important. And if you need to take three or four months, a year off to come over here and do this, the church will just have to understand. It was amazing. Thank you for being ascending church. Thank you for... Uh, giving a little time today for somebody who's decided to go. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you. We pray for Jimmy now as he's already preached at the Danube International Church. And he's preparing to go to Brno and then to go from Brno up into the mountains. There'll be lots of snow there to train Christian leaders who work on college campuses in the Czech Republic. Give him something fresh, something vital, something powerful. Remind us to pray for him, not just on Sundays, but every day. Remind us to pray for these other missionaries whose pictures are on the board out here. And make us to pray for ourselves. To make our lives theocentric, that as we minister to you, as we concentrate on you, as we bow down before you, that your Holy Spirit speaks to us. And you say, go there or stay here. Or set this one apart. 
Father, make us goers or make us senders. Until Jesus comes himself, those are the only two kinds of Christians there really are. And thank you for this little time together, studying your word. And thank you in Jesus' name, our great King, and for his sake. Amen.